On this evening's Ecology Hour, I will be your host, Hannah Bird. Well, on this evening's Ecology Hour, I get to nerd out on one of my favourite species, um, the fabulous Tarika terosa, or the um, California newt that you may know as the red-bellied newt that you perhaps sometimes see crossing the trails or crossing the road or near creeks and in creeks. Um, it's such a fabulous species, um, such a fabulous find when you're out on a walk. And so I get to speak today with Kate Marion Child, the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands. And also we're going to finish off the interview today or the, the program today with a conversation I had with Michael Haig, PhD, um, considering the evolutionary arms race between the garter snake and the um, California newt. And we recorded that back in 2017. But let's um, not ado any further. Let's get right into it with Kate Marion Child to learn a little bit more about herself and her book and also about our fabulous Newt Neighbours. Um, Kate, you wear many different hats. I introduced you as that author, but I also know you as a fantastic educator, naturalist, um, and just somebody whose passion for nature is shared with such great enthusiasm. Um, thanks for being with us today. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I have to admit, I feel slightly selfish today as well, because I, I hope we're going to get to kind of nerd out on newts a little bit, which is like one of my favorite things to do. But maybe before we start moving into that territory, um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the book. So Secrets of the Oak Woodlands has been out for a few years now. Can you remind me when that was published? It came out in July of 2014. And it's a big undertaking to write a book and especially one that combines science with all the passion that you bring to it as well. Can you give us some idea of what it took to, to write that book? Well, first it took years of wandering and wondering in the oak woodlands around here where I live outside of Ukiah. And as I wandered and wondered, I did some research to learn about uh, some of the species that I was excited about. And also I was surrounded by acorn woodpeckers. And I guess that's the very first thing that happened. I started I found out that acorn woodpeckers have the most complex social structure of any vertebrate species in the world. And I, they were enlivening my life at a time when I was pretty isolated and ill with Lyme disease. And I got attached to them and I started wondering what they needed from their ecosystem to survive. So that question took me into the whole Oak Woodland ecosystem. And I started asking that question about other just utterly astounding species that I, oh, I learned astounding things about a whole lot of other species like wood rats and newts, which we'll talk about today and blue belly lizards and ground squirrels and rattlesnakes. And so I started telling some of my naturalist and biologist friends about some of the things I had learned and they'd never heard of them. 
like the third eye of the Western pence lizard as a, like a little GPS unit. So eventually I, so I was doing a bunch of learning and I wrote some articles for the Ukiah Daily Journal. And then I realized it's a really, uh, that I, it's a huge effort to write an article for a one day appearance in a small town newspaper. So I, a uh, friend had suggested I contact Heyday in Berkeley uh, and they were excited right away about it. And then it took five more years <laughs> of really, really intense research that was very grueling at times because I had to uh, read science articles in online science journals and the uh, language and the concepts were often, I really struggled with a lot of them. And I was looking for the nuggets that I thought my readers would love to hear about. <laughs> so that, that's the thing that fascinates me about you and your process through this is, you know, lots of us are interested, but you went down, I hesitate to say a rabbit hole because I sound like I'm saying, but you really went in so deep and were so committed and so even those naturalist biologist friends of yours, you, they were saying, oh, I didn't know that. So what is it about you as a person, do you think, that, that, that takes you to that level where you're like, I'm going to read that journal and I'm going to figure out and I want to speak to that scientist? Well, I guess I have a little scientist in me, even though I don't have any science background. And I also have a lot of teacher in me. And I just was just driven, I don't like the word driven, but I was compelled to learn as much as I could and as accurately as I could to share with people because I was just so excited about all of it. And that's what really comes across in your book, which is, which you can't help but get caught up in. Um, and I guess I also want to catch myself there and kind of making it sound as if the academic scientific world is the only world to which you looked for information, because I think the other thing that's special about your book is, and, and I know for you as a person, is that you gather this information from the breadth of knowledge in our community. And maybe scientific literature is one part of that, but you also look to other places. I don't know if that's something you'd like to kind of express oh, a bit more. Yeah, I mean, friends of mine, such as Kathy Monroe would, say, tell me things, say things like, do you know about buzz pollination? How bumblebees uh, shake the pollen out of flowers? And she pointed out that it happened with shooting stars. And then I learned that it happened with manzanita and madrone. And, and, and that is just such an amazing story in itself. So friends and then observing myself, a lot of observing myself. While I was writing the book, I was all, all, I was, whenever the weather allowed, I was out of doors at an outdoor writing table. And some of the observations that I, I some of the uh, interactions that I describe in my book between species are uh, from things that happened while I was sitting outside. They so knew I, you were writing about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I'm a big fan of you and your book, but I, I just want to say we really appreciate you sharing this today. And for those who have not read your book, um, I know we're going to move on in a minute and you're going to share a little bit of it. 
And I think it's worth mentioning that you divide the book up into these different species. And then, you know, you just kind of unveil this magical mystery world for each of them. Um, so for me, moving to California, one of the things that I first, I still remember the first time I came across um, the, you know, the red-bellied newts that you write about. Um, and I remember walking with my husband and I saw one and I said, stop, there is something incredible on the path. And he was like, yeah, whatever. It's just one of the newts that we get around here. And for me, it looks like some crazy little dinosaur that, you know, just, just nothing that I would have ever come into contact with in the UK that was like that. Um, so then reading your, your chapter in the book, um, again, makes brings them to a whole other level too. So, Kate, would you introduce some of your writing to us and share um, a little bit about our fabulous newts? Okay. Now, this, these are my uh, newt chapter in the book is actually about the California newt, not the red-bellied newt. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to say that everybody I know, I guess, except your husband, is excited about newts. Yeah, we They're, have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just start off with a little bit of a summary. So newts are a kind of salamander and salamanders are amphibians. In California, we have four kinds of newts and here in Mendocino County, we have three of them, the California newt, the red-bellied newt and the rough-skinned newt. And right now they are uh, visible in ponds and creeks mating, doing their, their breeding, the breeding part of their life cycle. So I'm starting off with the first couple of paragraphs in my book. On a rainy winter solstice afternoon, a newt inched forward in the dead leaves beneath an interior live oak. So perfectly camouflaged was she among the rust brown and orange leaves that I wouldn't have seen her if she hadn't moved. Lowering my head to her level, I saw an eye with a full gold iris and a light colored lower eyelid. Tarika Tarosa, California newt. She froze, afraid of me, and I did too, waiting to see what she would do next. After a pause, she cautiously stretched out her left front arm, tipping her hand back and revealing its yellow underside before setting the hand down in tandem with her right rear leg which she had raised at the same time. In slow motion, with stops and starts, she cautiously wound her way toward a dark mossy opening between an old shelf fungus and a tree root. I wondered if this was where she had spent the summer and fall. Shaped roughly like lizards, but no more closely related to reptiles than to mammals, California's newts appear magically after fall, winter, and spring rains plodding purposefully across roads, trails, meadows, and leaf-littered slopes. Their painfully slow progress across open terrain suggests suicidal tendencies, but they have little to fear from most predators as they are protected by whopping amounts of a potent poison. They make epic journeys with an unerring sense of direction, and like most amphibians, have the ability to breathe, in quotes, in water as well as air. But their most amazing talent may be the ability to regrow perfect organs as well as limbs. Look for brown or rust colored salamanders up to eight inches long with yellow-orange 
yellow to orange bellies. Sometimes hundreds of them carpet a road or trail, legs and torsos flexing with such boneless grace that they appear to be made of soft rubber. They're also known as water dogs and water dogs leave streams in droves before rainstorms, perhaps to avoid being washed away. So you can use them as weather forecasters. In the spring, you might see mating balls, erotic cyclones of dozens or hundreds of glistening bodies undulating in fleshy tangles of arms, legs, torsos, and tails. That's absolutely fabulous. Thank you. And boy, it's, uh, uh, this, is, this is why they're captivating. This is like the craziest superhero I ever heard of, right? Like, I know. Seriously po toxic poison. Um, and then this incredible coloration on them. And then they can regrow organs. I, I just, they are just incredible. So they I want to- migrate long distances. Yeah, so I have a gazillion questions that lead on from that piece. Okay. Um, maybe we'll start at where you just finished, because I know one of the things we talked about um, on email as we planned for this is that you have just added to your observations of newts in yeah. seeing, I love the way you described it, an erotic cyclone. <laughs> Would you mind sharing a little bit about that experience? Yes, well, I wrote about those, uh, well, I've seen the mating balls before, but in another place I, um, in this chapter, I wrote about egg laying support groups and I had, but I had never seen them. I had only seen pictures of them and read about them. And this spring for the first time, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I um, went to a very shallow pond uh, in Potter Valley and there were hundreds of newts uh, laying eggs and some of them uh, in the um, in the mating position that's called amplexus, where a female swims with a male on her back, holding her, and he's actually propelling them around the pond. That can go on for up to seven hours. So I saw that. I saw I've seen that before too, but it was the egg laying uh, gatherings that I hadn't seen before, and there were. In one, in one group, there were about a, there were 50 newts, both males and females, um, just lying all over each other and or sometimes in vertical positions. I saw females, they seemed to like to uh, cling to grass stems and wrap their arms around them while they were laying eggs. And in one case, there was a male uh, next in front of the female. So they were facing each other, both in a vertical position. And he had his arms wrapped around her shoulders. And these, these egg, she was pushing out these egg masses, which are, um, they're about the size of, from a large grape to a ping pong ball. And they're hard gelatinous balls. And I mean, firm, they're not really hard, but they're firm. They're not like frog egg masses, which are much looser. And I'm not sure what was going on there. And I attended a Zoom talk recently by a scientist named Chris Feldman, who's studying newts and reptiles. And he, and I mentioned it in the question and answer session and he kind of shook his head and, I wondered if it was mate guarding, if the uh, male 
was maybe hoping to mate with her again or prevent anybody else from mating with her after she laid eggs. But I've also done some research recently and found that there are newts in some species, the males guard the egg masses. So maybe that's what he was trying to do. Do and they then we also, sorry, go ahead. We also saw uh, individual newts stand, uh, standing, I call it, uh, upright, uh, vertically, with egg masses held in their arms against their torsos. <laughs> and again, this is not something that you've seen reasons behind or this is a new observation um, for you yeah it's new observation so it's an opportunity for new learning and i've been scouring google scholar for articles on this and i keep uh you know finding little clues as to what it might be but i'm not sure yet and uh often there were females just lying on their backs with the egg masses coming out of them and you'd see a whole string of these ping pong ball sized um, jelly balls that each, each female lays four to five of them. And then each one contains somewhere between seven and 47 eggs. We also noticed, I'd never noticed before, but in this pond, almost every male had a kind of a gray brown back and every female had a reddish brown back. And we don't know what that's about. I don't know if our listeners know, but in breeding season, males and females change, their bodies change a little bit and the males change a lot more and they, their tails become greatly elongated and also vertically wider. And they uh, are a little bit translucent and they taper to a kind of a knife edge, a very flexible knife edge on the top and the bottom. And so those really much longer and wider tails act like paddles with which they can propel themselves around the pond and outcompete other males for females. And they also, their toe pads become um, bigger and darker and stickier. So they adhere better to the female's body so they can hang on to her. So these changes happen just for that mating season, that period. Yes. Wow. Yes. So I guess now, if you don't mind, we, uh -huh. I kind of feel like we went, that, that process is so, so interesting. And I love to hear your recent observations, but would you mind taking us back? The other thing I find really incredible is where do they go? Oh, <laughs> right? yeah. You know, they just, they're just here for this short period, it seems like, and then gone again. So where do they go for um, our hot, dry summers and then the fall um, and then we start to see them again when the rains start coming. Yeah, so the females now will leave the pond first after they have laid their eggs and, they, and, and then the males will also leave in most cases. There are some who stay in ponds or, or creek pools all, all dry season, but most of them move on, move, move out. And, and the little tiny uh, juvenile, immature juveniles, they'll be maybe two or two and a half or three inches long. And they also head out as soon as they're um, able to. And it's very heart wrenching to watch these tiny, tiny little creatures leave uh, knowing that they will not be back for about three years. They stay out away 
they, so they head out into this great unknown world of dry land all alone. <laughs> and so they, they go as far as two miles and they, um, they find moist places to uh, go into a state of torpor. It's called estivation during the dry season. So it's under leaf litter, in uh, crevices, in hollow logs, even in wood rat houses, uh, any place where they're pr protected from drying out. And then they can only eat when it becomes moist on a dewy day or when there's a light rain and then they can come out and, and forage for food. So they have to have enough food reserves to keep to get, keep them going through that whole period. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, they they can go out and there are, um, you know, times when they can go out and forage for food. And, and I guess I, that and, and, mm -hmm. Sorry, one, of, on. one of the things that they eat is is worms and snails and slugs. And I'm wondering if maybe in these estivation nooks and crannies maybe they sometimes encounter those and can get a meal. Yeah, it's like takeout, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess also when they're in that state of torpor, their energy use is, is very, very minimal. Right? Exactly. I'm thinking in yeah. a very human way that we need to yeah. keep eating. <laughs> Just thinking about lunch. <laughs> um, they have one interesting uh, adaptation for a drought where they, when they're out on a, on a somewhat dry day, when their urine comes out, it flows up over their skin to keep them moist so they won't dry out too much. Incredible. Um, I'm really intrigued, they're young. Are they as toxic? I mean, also these egg masses that you've described, when does the toxicity start kicking in? Because maybe that's something that's worth us just spending a moment talking about as well. Would you yeah. mind updating us on just how toxic we are talking about? Oh yeah. Well, um, a single toxic newt, not all newts are toxic. They're only toxic in places where their territories overlap with those of garter snakes and common garter snakes. Well, there are three species of garter snakes. And um, so, one of the most toxic newts ever tested would, if a human ate it, it would kill, I mean, if humans ate it, it could kill uh, up to 60 humans. It, they used to say up to 200, but they've scaled that number down. But I'm not One sure. Way or that, another. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> or a thousand mice. <laughs> Wow, just don't eat them is the lesson. Right? I want to tell our listeners, I said readers earlier, I want to tell our <laughs> listeners that um, the, the, the skin, the, the most toxic part of a newt is the skin, but it doesn't get absorbed through our skin. You would have to eat it or lick it in order to get harmed by it. And you would probably die. So don't even try it. Which is what so where it comes from has been a mystery. Uh, it's tetrodotoxin is the, is the toxin. It's a thousand times more poisonous than cyanide. And um, they haven't, they know that it's, it, we know that it's in puffer fish. People die sometimes eating puffer Ooh. fish in restaurants. 
And that there they think it's produced by bacteria that live symbiotically on the, puff, on the puffer fish. And, uh, but they have American scientists have thought that our newts got their toxins some other way, either by eating it or by synthesizing it themselves in their own bodies. And just recently in 2020, a paper was published in which uh, they said that they had isolated four species of bacteria, four genera of bacteria from the skin of, of rough skin newts that is known to produce tetrodotoxin, which, or TTX, which is the name of the toxin. So I was all excited and I thought, wow, well, they've discovered what it is. But when I went to this talk by Dr. Feldman the other day, I asked him about it and he said, well, there were some problems with that study. And there are these other people who think, aren't sure that the bacteria are really producing very much TTX and that there's this, these other ways that might be produced. So uh, That's that, the way, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think anyone believes anymore that it's being uh, it's something they eat, but they do think it's possibly something that they're able to synthesize it. Mm -hmm. So back to your question, the, the uh, females transfer tetrodotoxin to their eggs. And, the, and then from the eggs, uh, it, some gets transferred to the larvae, but when the larvae are, you know, several weeks old, I think the tetrodotoxin is very low in them. But then it appears again in these little, the little uh, juveniles that I described are called Fs, E-F-T-S, and they have the TTX again. And, and so when you were describing that they start moving over land and start, you know, moving and figuring out where they will estivate as well, then that would be a process that they would, they would at that point have this toxicity. And so, I guess I'm intrigued about whether predators know of any period in the life of these that they can eat them and be safe. Um, I don't know. Do you know whether there, there is, I, I, you've mentioned there are some predators, right? Yes, there is the common garter snake, the aquatic garter snake, and the Sierra garter snake. And then there are also caddisfly larvae. Caddisflies, I don't know if our listeners have ever seen little, what appear to be um, blobs of gravel or needles or sand moving around on the bottom of a pond, but those are the larvae of caddisflies. So they're, they're aquatic, even though the moth-like adult is, you know, flies around in the air. And um, so caddisflies are, uh, have resistance to the toxin in newts, five times more resistance than garter snakes do. So, uh, so there's this uh, phenomenon that scientists call a, an evolutionary arm, a co-evolutionary arms race in which one species is toxic. You know, a mutation occurs that makes them toxic so that pre a particular predator can't eat them. But then that, in this case, garter snakes, and, that, and then that predator develops, has mutations that cause it to become resistant to that toxin. So then 
the, in this case, the newt has to become more toxic and the garter snakes have to become more resistant. So they used to think that it was garter snakes that were driving this coevolutionary arms race that were causing newts to be toxic, but now they're not sure how much it's garter snake and how much snakes and how much it's caddisfly larvae. And one interesting part of this whole phenomenon is that, so tetrodotoxin is a nerve poison. It, it blocks sodium channels so that muscles um, can't fire and animals become paralyzed. Respirate, muscles in, in their respiration become paralyzed. And um, when a garter snake swallows a newt, if the newt is too toxic for it, the garter snake's muscles will become paralyzed and it can't continue the peristalsis of swallowing the newt. But, uh, and, and these, uh, Chris Feldman, the, Dr. Feldman told us the other day that they have observed a, a case where a garter snake was swallowing a newt for two hours and then its muscles became paralyzed and the newt crawled out alive and crawled away. <laughs> they really are superheroes. This is incredible. <laughs> this is just a reminder that you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. And this evening we are delving into the fascinating world of California newts with author Kate Marion Child. One of the things, one of the other things that I just find utterly amazing and you, you had in that paragraph you just read out is Am I right in thinking, will they return to the same place that they were born? How do they know where to go, right? There's a lot of things you're talking about here where it seems they have this incredible map built into them to understand. Yes, they do. They have a magnetic iron oxide crystals in their brain that reads the magnetic fields of the earth and creates for them sort of an internal map. And then they also navigate with something called a celestial compass that reads. So uh, it, 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 this, the celestial compass needs light from the sun, the moon, or the stars. And when light from the heavens reaches the Earth's atmosphere, it polarizes and breaks into patterns. And the celestial compass, which I'm not sure where it is in the newt, but it detects those patterns and it can navigate by them, which is the same way that a lizard navigates. It's the same way its third eye becomes a GPS unit by reading the, the polarized light patterns. So a newt will follow those, uh, both the magnetic, the magnetic and the celestial compass directions to get back to into the into the vicinity of its uh, natal waters where it was born, and um, then when it gets close, it also smells the it, it recognizes familiar smells. And one thing I'm wondering: this pond that I went to is actually a slight diversion from a creek. A, a small amount of water gets siphoned out of a creek. And I am wondering uh, what brought the newts to the pond instead of to the creek, because it's you know a few hundred feet away. 
And I'm thinking it might be the smell of the water that they got to their natal creek pool and found it didn't have enough water in it. And then, Interesting. So that, that is something I wanted to ask you a little more about, knowing that we are in a historically low rainfall year again. What do we think? That, what, any thoughts on impacts that we might be seeing? I guess, you know, this leads to the larger question of as we see the climate change, I know that um, amphibians are going to be particularly affected with all species, but um, have you anything to add about what we think we might see, particularly for to our beloved um, Tarika Tarosa? Well, I have friends who say they're not seeing newts this year when they usually do and where they usually do. Mm. And they're also seeing them looking emaciated. Um, the ones that I saw didn't look emaciated and there were more of them than there have ever been in this pond as far as the landowners know and at least their time there. Um, I've been thinking about all of the massive fuel reduction work that is being done and how the, the workers, the, the tree cutters and tree draggers are trampling over leaf litter that might have newts estivating in it and they're removing um, shrubs and trees that have um, hollows that might be estivation nooks and I just uh, and then just the drought overall less water for newts I mean less water means less breeding it seems to me because ponds do when ponds dry up, um, a lot of the eggs die or the, or the larvae die. Mm -hmm. Yes, I don't want to take us down too much of a, too there's so much to be, <laughs> no, there's so much to be uh, amazed at by them, but I, I can't help thinking about that this year. I think, I mean, maybe that's something I'm bringing to my observations. I feel like I've seen less, but sometimes we tell ourselves that because we're adding bits of information together that don't necessarily yeah, it doesn't, yeah, I'm not sure that when my friends who have reported seeing fewer newts, it, it might be just it's a, a different cycle. Because one thing about newts is that this is very promising, is that, that they, they've uh, discovered that they're very flexible in their breeding time. So they can breed anywhere. They've been seen in Amplexus in September and eggs have been seen in November, although I usually think of it as being March and April. So they actually, I read an article in which uh, the authors said that they thought that newts might be well prepared to handle hmm. climate change hmm. because, because they have evolved here in this very, uh, this climate of erratic rainfall, undependable yes. erratic rainfall. So they've evolved flexibility. That's really interesting. So that that brings me, I, I, I don't want to keep you for too long, although I know we could talk about newts for a whole series of ecology hours. And then... Well, one thing I really wanted to touch base on is um, 
where are some good places for folks if folks are listening to this and thinking oh I'd like to go out and just make my observation spend some time watching these incredible creatures have you got any places that you might suggest that there are accessible well uh Ore Creek and Logat Park has a lot of newts uh I've seen mostly red-bellied newts there and for our listeners those are um they're pretty much really dark brown to black on top and tomato red on the underside. And they have dark eyes with no gold irises. Um, so then also uh, in the Deerwood subdivision on the south side of Lake Mendocino, if you walk far to the east, to the sort of the uh, southeast corner of Lake Mendocino, a creek comes in there and I've seen newts there. So that's uh, public land. Um, Any advice on the actual, when you get, if you get to those places? So there's particular places you should look for them um, or, or tips on how to watch out for them? Well, um, just look really closely into the water. You might not see it. You might see a reflection first. And so you just have to get still and wait and look for some movement. Uh, close focusing binoculars are very helpful for looking at newts and seeing incredible detail. Um, other than that, with all nature observation, getting still and uh, watching for something to change in the environment around you is an excellent thing to do. And there are a lot of good reasons to do that, not just to find newts, <laughs> just so for I, your own mental health. <laughs> absolutely. And I guess, you know, we're, we're at a time of year where it, it always excites me that suddenly everything seems to be happening. I mean, there's always seasonal change. There are always exciting things to be watching out for. But this time of year, it just gets... I know. Really, <laughs> is there anything else that you've been looking out for or enjoying in the last few weeks? Well, when we were at this uh, pond, there were uh, Pacific chorus frogs uh, right in broad daylight um, chorusing. They would just start up and then stop and start up and stop, and we couldn't tell why. And the male's vocal sacs were ballooned out, and they were just enormous <laughs> and you know they're incredibly loud so um so frogs and then i'm seeing dragonflies are starting there's one particular species of dragonfly the variegated meadowhawk that overwinters as an adult and actually flies all year i don't mean over that's what butterflies do but they, it flies all year so i i saw some of those in early january and i'd never seen that before that astonished me uh, let's see, fetid adder's tongues are blooming on the Reeves Canyon Road about four miles up. Where, Would you mind uh, describing one of those to us? It sounds horrific, but I'm I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, uh, they have three uh, petals that uh, come out um, in sort of a triangle and they're white with uh, sort of red-brown stripes. Uh, very exotic looking flowers. And oh gosh, um, what else is happening? There are a few butterflies that are flying. I've seen uh, 
a California tortoiseshell and morning cloak butterflies, and those both Gosh. overwinter as adults. So that's why we see them early in the season. Oh, and Manzanita is blooming. It's in full bloom, finally. I gave a Zoom talk uh, called The Amazing Manzanita and All Her Relations on January 13th, and it was scheduled for a time when we were sure Manzanita would be blooming, but it hardly was. <laughs> and uh, but it didn't matter because I got people ready and they've uh, been going, people have been writing me and sending me photographs of the insects that they photographed on the manzanita. And so this is a time when you can watch bumblebees uh, land on a manzanita blossom or a bunch of, a, a few blossoms upside down and you can't see this, but then they have to disconnect their flight muscles and then they start vibrating them. If they didn't disconnect them, they would fly away and what they don't wanna fly away because they're trying to get pollen that's uh, held inside the anther, inside the flower corolla. And they, so they start vibrating their flight muscles and they vibrate them faster and faster and faster. And as they're doing that, the pollen grains inside the anthers are starting to dance around. And then finally, when they get up to middle C, the pitch of middle C, which I don't have my pitch pipe right now, but <laughs> then they, uh, the pollen all bursts out on the, onto the bumblebee's abdomen. So, and uh, yeah, there are a lot of insects that are attracted to manzanita right now. So it's a great place to watch. And, and you see manzanita all over the place. Um, yeah. I think that's a fairly fairly easy one to spot um, and then just spending some time just watching. Um, so, Kate, if people have been inspired listening to you tonight, I really hope they have. I, I always feel inspired whenever I get a chance to have a chat with you. Uh, where can they connect more with, I mean, there's your wonderful book, Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, but I heard that you've got other talks um, do you want to share with us a little bit more about ways that people could um, oh, yeah. hear more of? So you can go to my website at katemarianchild.com. That's M-A-R-I-A-N-C-H-I-L-D, all one word. And you can go to my Walks, Talks, and Classes page. And there you can sign up for the next talk I'm giving, which is on uh, California's iconic oaks and many of their relations. They're all the animals and plants that associate with them, or many of them, and that'll be on April 1st. And you can also uh, find links to my two most recent Zoom talks. One is called The Amazing Manzanita and All Her Relations, and one is called uh, Who's Who Among the Oaks, and that's about identifying oak trees. And it sounds, might sound boring. I used to think that was really boring and I make it really fun. I, it's a good idea to bring some acorns with you when you watch the talk. And I have all sorts of interactive things that you do and um, some poems that are mnemonic aids for remembering the characteristics of different oak trees. So um, I've given that talk three times now it's very popular <laughs> so well, I, I have to also give a plug for the the only thing that gets me anywhere near to identifying oaks is a chart that you have worked on with a, a few others oh which yeah which helps and that's I think that's on your website as well isn't it it's just two pages laminate 
chart and it helps to bring down what seems like this just in, impossible task of identifying out to something that's more realistic. Yeah, and you won't find, oh, you will find that now on the homepage, there's a link to it. And um, I just also wanna mention that there's a link to, you have to go to any other page and then you'll find a link to a page that's all about how to restore, protect and restore populations of insects, particularly moth and butterfly larvae, which are what we call caterpillars, because they are essential to the survival of baby songbirds. Most baby songbirds need caterpillars. So I have a whole page on that. And the key there is planting native plants because caterpillars, moths and butterflies have co-evolved with native plants to be resistant to their toxins. Here we are talking about new toxins and resistance. And the same thing happens in the world of insects that, and plants. The plants protect themselves against herbivory, against being eaten by, with, with certain chemicals and, and caterpillars eat tremendous amounts of plant material. They just munch and munch and munch and munch leaves for two weeks and triple or quadruple or I forget how much they increase in size, way more than triple or quadruple, like 10 or 20 times or 50 times their size. And, um, and so they have to be able to survive eating of any given plant. So they have evolved resistance to particular native plants and all the non-native plants that have been, that we have brought in precisely so they wouldn't be eaten by insects are toxic to them. So we have to start planting for butterflies and moths and rejoicing in leaf damage. <laughs> I like it. And this is a time of year, I think, when we often start thinking about doing some work in the garden. So yeah. maybe that can be our closing note today is everybody go out and just plant a native plant. Uh, I know the our local library in Ukiah has a wonderful kind of seed library that might be able to support you with some of that. Um, and I know there's plenty of other places that are um, focusing on native plants these days. And I have a spreadsheet on that page on my website that lists locally native plants and how many caterpillars and butterflies each one supports. Goodness me, that's brilliant. Thank you, Kate. Not only for sharing your book, for writing your book, but for carrying it through to that kind of incredibly positive action. We really appreciate all that you do for us around here. Thank you. And I, you, Hannah, I'm one of your greatest admirers. Well, thank you so much to Kate Marion Child. Um, as I'm sure you'll agree, she's just got so much passion for the wonderful creatures that we have around us and not only that but can express it in such a fascinating way. Um, if you would like to find out more about Kate's talks, about her book, you can do so at www.katemarianchild.com. You can also contact her through that website. Um, she does, does ask that if you do contact her through the website, make sure to include your county and that will help her to respond to you in the best way possible. 
Now, having had the conversation with Kate, I wanted to follow up with a recording of an interview I made with Michael Haig, PhD. Um, we recorded this interview back in 2017, but I have noticed that since then, Michael has now become a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Montana in the Division of Biological Sciences. And um, in my conversation with Michael, we considered a little more um, the co-evolutionary arms race, which is taking place between our fabulous newts and our local garter snakes. So the first time that I ran into you was right outside the office here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. And you were just coming to look at potentially um, getting some data from our site at the time. And as soon as you expressed to me what you were studying, it just sounded so fascinating and I think our listeners will feel the same way. Um, you've got some key species that people are really interested in there. So snakes and you're also looking at newts on the site and I just thought, wow. So tell me what first got you interested in this area of work? Yes. Uh, so I actually, I did my master's just down the road at San Francisco State University with uh, Eric Routman was my advisor. And I knew at that point that I really wanted to study evolutionary biology and how uh, populations and species adapt to their local environment. Um, and Eric Routman is a herpetologist, uh, so he studies reptiles and amphibians. So we did some work on population genetics on some lizards in the Mojave Desert. And I learned that I really liked evolutionary biology and population genetics, but I also learned that I really liked uh, working with herpetological species. Um, <clears throat> so after I did my master's, I, I sort of figured I should go, just go for it, go the distance and get my PhD. And I started looking at labs and found this one that studied interesting, compelling relationship between garter snakes and newts. Excellent. So, okay, that brings us a little bit to how you got to this situations. Yes. Tell me right now what you're learning about garter snakes and newts. Yes, so I am interested in uh, co-evolution. So that's when two species evolve together reciprocally and that can result in uh, mutually beneficial relationships like plants and pollinators or antagonistic relationships like predator and prey or host parasite. So I'm really interested in the antagonistic side of things and I study what's called a predator-prey co-evolutionary arms race. So these newts, there's a few species of newt in California that are particularly toxic. Uh, the rough-skinned newt and the California newt are the ones that I study. And they produce a toxin called tetrodotoxin, which is a really potent neurotoxin. It's actually the same toxin that's in pufferfish. That's why you have to be careful when you prepare pufferfish. Mm -hmm. um, so this toxin normally deters most predators um, because <clears throat> it will kill them. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, some folks, um, particularly my advisor, Butch Brody uh, III, and his dad, Butch Brody Jr., discovered that uh, garter snake species have evolved a resistance to the toxin and they can consume even the most toxic newts. Um, and we call it an arms race because the presumably the newts have evolved high toxicity, snakes evolve higher resistance, and it just kind of reciprocally uh, escalates from there. So garter snakes are the only species that we know of that can successfully eat these highly toxic newts? Uh, they're the best studied. So there's um, three separate species of garter snake in California that have independently have evolved a resistance to this toxin and can consume the newts. Um, it's the common garter snake, the aquatic garter snake, and the Sierra garter snake. Uh, and then there are in Oregon, there are caddis flies that are thought to eat the toxic larvae of the, or the toxic eggs of the newts. And then there's sort of some, some anecdotal evidence of birds preying on newts, mm. but it seems like 
those those uh, instances were uh, birds preying on newts that weren't very toxic in regions of the coast that that uh, newts aren't that toxic. So I th that this brings me to an interesting part of this yeah. whole question is I feel like especially when I talk about the newts, there's a lot of anecdotal stories that yes. come out about their yeah. toxicity, about boiling them up in a can, yeah. gold rush, <laughs> and everybody dying. Uh -huh. Now the reality is that. We maybe don't know exactly how many of those stories are true, but we do know that that toxin has the capacity to kill a lot of people. Yeah, so there's all kinds of, uh, of fun stories. I think my favorite is um, how the, the new toxin was allegedly discovered was there were uh, campers that had mysteriously died at their campsite, or I think there were hunters, uh, and a a policeman was called to the scene and realized that they had drank some coffee with a newt that was boiled in the coffee uh, and the toxin was secreted into the coffee. But we actually don't know a lot about the source of the toxin in the newts. It's thought that maybe it's some sort of bacteria uh, in the newt that helps them synthesize this toxin and then the, the newt sort of sequester it and use it as an anti-predator device. It's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. One of the questions I've been asked recently is it's not on the skin of the newt because obviously lots of people have probably, as a kid, yeah. found these newts around in creeks, played with them, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It's not something that they're getting on their hands. It's something which is within the body. Of the so newt, it is correct? secreted from the skin. Right. Um, so you can imagine if you were a predator to bite into a newt, it might secrete the toxin. Right, I see. Yeah. So is, do they pose uh, a threat for people who are just... Likely not. If you pick one up, I would definitely recommend washing your hands afterwards words and not, you know, um, but the fact we're not having a lot of like hospitalization that. of kids yeah, exactly. in the springtime yeah. or in the fall weather. Yeah. yeah. And I should mention the, the variation in levels of toxicity of newts up and down the West coast. So these species of newt occur from, uh, Southern California all the way up to the Alaskan panhandle. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of, uh, variation in how toxic the populations are mm -hmm. from site to site as you move up the coast. So that difference in toxicity is one of the keys for you in understanding how these relationships with individual populations of garter snakes and newts have progressed, right? Because you're finding yeah. that there are areas where you've got the greater toxicity, you've got the greater resistance in the snakes as well. My, the kind of the bigger question of my, of my dissertation is, how do um, patterns of population structure and demography affect local adaptation in the arms race? So how does that affect toxicity of the newts and resistance in the snakes? So there's this evolutionary process we call gene flow, which is when, for example, a snake from one population migrates to another population and mates and shares its genes with that other population. We call that gene flow. So I'm really interested in how does gene flow affect local adaptation. So for example, if you have a snake at Hopland that's really resistant, it's got mutations in its DNA that cause it to be resistant to the toxin and it migrates to another population shares that mutation with a new population, how does that affect coevolutionary mm -hmm. dynamics? Mm -hmm. um, so the first, back to your question, the first chunk of my dissertation has just sort of been pinpointing these uh, genetic mutations in the garter snakes that confer resistance to them. And we found that um, two separate, what we call hotspots or coevolutionary hotspots of garter snakes seem to have independently evolved resistance through very similar mutations to a protein in their, in their muscle. Um, so that was kind of the first part of my dissertation. And then the second chunk will be looking at how gene flow 
uh, moves those mutations among populations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So at this point in time, I do remember you saying when you came and you were collecting uh, newts earlier in the year that you thought you were finding fairly high levels of resistance or high toxicity. Yeah. So um, last year in the spring, I was here collecting snakes and we measured how resistant they are to the toxin in the newts. And all the snakes that we measured from Hopland up at Hog Lake are extremely resistant to the toxin. Um, so I was back here um, February over the winter, mm -hmm. and I was collecting newt samples, and those are at our uh, collaborator at Cal State Bakersfield, Amber Stokes. She is uh, currently measuring how toxic the newts are. Um, so I'll be curious. I would imagine they're pretty toxic if the snakes here are pretty yeah. resistant. But that'll be a really interesting thing to see. Yeah. And we'll be looking forward to sharing that with the listeners when, when we hear yeah, from you. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that also was really interesting when I first met you that was it's always fun for me in this position to meet researchers who were going out. And mm -hmm. obviously you have a huge amount of knowledge about this subject, but it's very interesting to actually catch you when you're out doing field work because... Mm -hmm. You know, I also work with a lot of kids and young people, and if I tell them that they could have a job as a scientist, which involved just catching newts and snakes, yeah. most kids are like, yes, give me that job. Yeah. Um, so how much of your time is spent doing, maybe you could call it the fun stuff, although I'm sure on yeah. a hot day, it's pretty nightmarish. No, sometimes. it's still fun. I, I like it. Yeah, no, I, I sometimes I like to think the field work sort of justifies the lab work sitting at a computer eight hours a day. But um yeah, and I think the fieldwork is really sort of why I initially wanted to be a biologist. When I was a kid, I really just loved running around our farm and, and catching stuff. So I spend... So it's all good practice, right, even when they're doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can, they're practicing to be future biologists. Yeah, so I spend about a month and a half, two months in the field every year, and then the rest is just kind of um, processing data, writing, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is um, a really exciting time to study evolutionary genetics because of genomics. Mm -hmm. um, so sequencing whole genomes or large portions of genomes of organisms has become pretty cheap in the last five or ten years. And that allows us to generate much more fine-scale data sets and look at really specific questions. Um, so I'm going to be using, for this project, I'm going to be um, extracting the DNA from all the snake and new tissue samples that I've collected and, and using a next generation uh, genomic technique to look at, at population structure and gene flow. Perhaps, I don't know if this is still the way they do it, but I remember you were looking at resistance in the garter snakes by looking at how quickly they could go down a tube. Could you explain that process, yeah. something like that? Yes. Um, so tetrodotoxin, the toxin in the newts, is a neurotoxin. So it affects um, the function of your muscle and nerve tissue. So if you were to eat a really toxic newt, um, your diaphragm would sort of stop working and you wouldn't be able to breathe. Um, so the way we test how resistant the snakes are to the toxin is to test their muscle function when they've been exposed to the toxin. So we will race them down a racetrack to just figure out how fast they crawl, how well their muscle works. Mm -hmm. And then we'll inject them with a known dose of the toxin and then measure how much their crawl speed is reduced after they've been exposed to the toxin. And that's how we get sort of a rough estimate of how resistant they are. Well, thank you so much to Michael for joining us on the Ecology Hour this evening. And of course, thanks to you all for listening. And we look forward to visiting with you again next month. Please remember that if you have any comments about the program, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email. 
hbird, H-B-I-R-D, at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.